Hey, I'm really pleased to welcome you all to the first session of EAGX Virtual. It follow this session follows on from an EA forum post written by John Halstead and Hauke Hillebrandt titled Growth and the Case Against Random Easter Development. Following a 20-minute talk by Hauke, we'll move on to a live Q&A session where he'll respond to your questions. You can submit questions in your name or anonymously using the box on the right-hand side of this video. You can also vote for your favorite questions to push them higher in the queue. We'll try to get through as many as we can. Then after 20 minutes of questions, I'll bring the Q&A to an end, but that's not the end of the session. To help you think through and apply the ideas you've learned, you can join a 20-minute icebreaker session where you'll have two speed meetings with other attendees to discuss your thoughts on the content. I'll explain how to do that when we get there. But now I'd like to introduce our speaker for this session. Hauke Hillebrand is the founder and CEO of Let's Fund, which researches policy solutions to important problems and crowdfunds for solutions that seem especially effective. Previously, he was research associate at the Center for Global Development, where he worked on global cooperation as well as climate and trade policy. Before that, we worked together at the Center for Effective Altruism. Hauke holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from University College London, was a fellow at Harvard University, and has published peer-reviewed papers with more than 200 citations. Here's Hauke. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Hauke Lebrand. I'm going to talk to you today about growth in the case against random Mr. development. And this is based on an effective altruism forum post that I uh, wrote in collaboration with John Halstead. But I should say that this presentation doesn't necessarily reflect John's views. And also, I should say that the ideas and material here rely heavily on work by Land Pritchard, who's a professor of economics at Oxford University. So um, the EA Global Speaker Guidelines tell me that I should remind the audience that I might be wrong in my assertions and highlight the main arguments against my argument. Um, but for clarity's sake and for brevity's sake, uh, I don't excessively hatch my claims throughout. So this epistemic status disclaimer will have to do. Um, all of this is still a bit uncertain and speculative. Um, there's certainly good counter arguments. Don't believe anything you hear from someone on YouTube. Uh, so all of this is uh, under the hashtag better wrong than vague, hashtag strong stances, hashtag say wrong things, hashtag big if true, and hashtag correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so please reply to the forum post um, if you think I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, you can find the full post on the Effective Altruism Forum, and um, there you'll find all the hedges, qualifications, steel manning, biases, uh, acknowledgements, references, citations, further reading, podcasts, videos, anything really. So check out the Effective Altruism Forum post um, of this presentation. Right, okay. Um, the Effective Altruism Global Speaker Guidelines told me to start off the presentation in a lighthearted and humorous way. So this is me. Okay, so uh, randomistic development, what is it? Randomistic development is a form of development economics which promotes interventions that can be tested by randomized control trials. Um, so Bettner distributions against malaria, dewarming, cash transfers, those are prime examples of randomistic development. And it is um, exemplified by GiveWell, um, which primarily works in health, and the randomistic movement in economics, which primarily works in economic development. So here you can see um, uh, Duflo, Banerjee, Kramer, the three most popular randomistas who just received the Nobel Prize in Economics for their work this year. Um, okay, 
what are the key claims that I'm uh, making in this presentation? Um, number one is uh, prominent economists make plausible arguments, which suggest that research on and advocacy for economic growth in low and middle income countries is more cost effective than interventions funded by proponents of randomistic development. Um, the second claim is that the effective altruism community has neglected these arguments and should prioritize engaging with them. Uh, key claim three is improving health is not the best way uh, to increase growth. And key claim four is we can find funding opportunities that help grow economies of low-income countries that would be substantially better than give us top recommended charity. And that would only require a relatively small research effort. So, um, yeah, we wrote this post really to start a conversation and um, potentially cause a major reorientation within EA. And um, I should say, uh, I too used to support direct funding of interventions that can be tested by RCTs. But now I think uh, it's suboptimal and um, perhaps people in the EA community should hold off with donating to randomistic charities until this discussion is uh, resolved. So um, what is the case for growth? Why is growth so important? Um, economic growth explains a substantial fraction of variance in welfare across countries. So uh, here you see that um, uh, welfare and GDP per capita uh, correlates very strongly. This is from a paper where they constructed a composite measure of welfare that included not only consumption, but also uh, leisure time, inequality, and mortality. Uh, and they created this uh, consumption equivalent uh, welfare measure. And you see the correlation is very tight. It's, it's in fact, it's um, uh, 0.96. Uh, so welfare predicts, uh, um, GDP per capita predicts welfare very well. So what about extreme poverty? Um, one of the most prominent EA cause areas. Um, GDP per capita is strongly correlated with extreme poverty reduction, which is defined as living on less than 190 a day. Um, and here on this chart, um, you see uh, countries that are plotted. Each, each uh, dot is uh, one country. And uh, you see median um, uh, income or consumption uh, per person, which correlates very uh, strongly with GDP per capita, usually. And you see that um, increasing, um, and, and so sorry, on this axis here, you see um, headcount poverty rate. So how many uh, people within the population live in extreme poverty on less than 190 a day. And uh, you see that increasing median income above a certain level is actually empirically sufficient to eliminate extreme poverty. So above uh, a median income of $5,000 per capita, no country uh, has um, uh, more than 2.5% of their population living in extreme poverty. Um, and you don't need any cash transfers or bed nets to achieve that. All you need to do is grow your economy, and then empirically, uh, you won't have uh, much extreme poverty. And uh, increasing median uh, per capita income uh, above a certain level is also empirically necessary to eliminate um, poverty, because you can see here, too, that um, almost no country has pushed uh, uh, 550 a day uh, poverty below 10% without increasing their median income above $3,500. So that means if you don't grow your economy, then you won't make a large dent in extreme poverty reduction. Right, so um, life satisfaction, that also correlates very strongly with GDP per capita. Uh, once it is above uh, $20,000, um, 
no country has an average life satisfaction score below five uh, on a scale from from one to seven. Um, and actually, the country uh, those those richer countries will do uh, well on most objective and subjective measures of welfare, such as life expectancy, literacy, sanitation, low child mortality, or reduced undernourishment. But almost no country with a GDP per capita less than three thousand dollars has an average life satisfaction score above five. And um, it will actually do poorly on most objective and subjective measures of welfare. And this is likely to be causal. So if you want to do the most good, um, then you ought to figure out how to increase growth, how to increase GDP per capita. But um, in the effective autism community so far, um, there have been virtually no investigations uh, published on how to do that. Um, global health and development interventions, they do not increase GDP per capita by much. And it is uh, not very plausible, so I'll argue, that things like bed nets, dewarming, HIV education, vaccination reminders, improved cook stoves, cash transfers, and so on, are the most effective way to increase growth. Um, when we look at the huge welfare gains in um, Asian countries in the second half of the 20, uh, 20th century, like China, Indonesia, Vietnam, and so on, um, hundreds of millions of people got out of uh, extreme poverty and no serious development economist argues that this was because the governments of these countries um, supported randomista interventions or aid supported these uh, randomista interventions like dewarming or cash transfers. Like China did not live hundreds of millions of people out of poverty through cash transfers. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so improving health is not the best way to improve growth. This might strike some people as surprising because um, it's quite intuitive that health would um, uh, grow your economy. After all, healthier people can work harder and learn more in school and where people live longer, they will be incentivized to invest more in education. And so one might expect that better health would lead, uh, lead to, um, to growth. But um, actually, according to a recent meta-analysis by David Weil, a professor at Brown, um, on health and the relationship to economic growth, um, uh, the evidence for an effect of health causing growth is relatively weak. And the high quality studies that um, there are, they find small or even negative effects of health on growth. So um, why, why is that? Why doesn't health boost GDP much? And I think it's, it's helpful um, to look at the standard models of how countries develop in order um, to see why that is. So uh, historically, um, uh, sorry, um, historically, uh, almost all non-poor countries uh, have grown their economies in three steps. Um, first, you have uh, rural to urban migration. So you have unskilled subsistence farmers migrate to cities and start working in factories. And overnight, um, this increases the productivity of these uh, farmers many times over. And in the second step, uh, this very crude simplified model, uh, the manufacturing sector absorbs vast amounts of unskilled labor. So these workers, um, they need very little human capital. Uh, they don't need to be educated because uh, the work in the factories is very simple and they do not need to be healthy either because um, there's just such a surplus of labor uh, in uh, low-income countries that there are enough, there are always enough healthy people uh, who are very willing to replace um, sick workers without increasing population health. Um, and then 
In the third step, uh, you have the manufacturing sector, which exports niche products uh, to the world market to create wealth for the country. So the factories find their niche product. Um, initially, that's often garments. And then they export it to the world market, which can absorb just vast amounts of stuff. Um, so that you can, you can uh, create uh, a billion pairs of sneakers. And then you can take that money and invest that uh, capital that you create into, um, into education and, 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 and so on. So that then, only then, much later, uh, your economy can move into um, uh, high productivity services and so on. And this is how almost every country uh, has developed so far. Uh, so, of course, this is very simplified, but the main takeaway here really is that health doesn't cause much growth, but growth does cause health, as we've seen. Uh, and this is also uh, uh, mentioned in the meta-analysis by David Weil, that improvements in health have indeed been the result of economic growth. So if this is so, then... Uh, how can we increase growth in order to get health and welfare and so on? Um, and the answer is through growth economic, uh, through uh, growth-friendly policies, such as uh, economic liberalization policies uh, or trade liberalization. Um, but it's not all, you know, to the right of the economic spectrum. Uh, it's just about economic policy. So it could also be infrastructure spending. Uh, it could also be expert-led development and state protection of industry. Um, yeah, which is a bit more, um, has, a, has a bigger role of the state. Um, so let, let's, let's just look at trade liberalization um, as an example. So uh, trade liberalization reduces infant mortality to quite a significant extent. It's usually considered to cause growth. Um, and uh, so for instance, one recent uh, natural experiment suggests that the U.S. trade agreement with sub-Saharan African countries in 2000 um, caused infant mortality to uh, drop by nine percentage points on a country level. Um, and another recent study found that trade liberalization reduced child mortality, child mortality um, in 50% um, of developing countries uh, that, they, that the study looked at. And in most of those countries, child mortality was reduced by more than 20%. Um, so this is, this is big if true. Uh, to get to a similar reduction in infant mortality, um, uh, one would have to distribute many millions and millions of benefits. And this is why uh, many economists claim that trade deals have a much higher benefit cost ratio than global health interventions. Because in contrast to these randomistic development interventions, which have very high costs per person uh, and quite small benefits, trade deals are low or even negative in costs. Um, negative because you have gains from trade and um, they have very high benefits. So for a trade deal, you really just need um, a bunch of paper and political will, um, but it scales very well. So to see how big the differences are um, uh, between randomist interventions and um, preventing large growth decelerations, uh, defined as big structural breaks in the trend of growth of uh, 10 to 30 year episodes um, or causing big uh, growth accelerations, which, which I, I don't plot here, uh, we, we, can, we can imagine what would happen if we were to spend $1 billion on uh, the graduation uh, approach, uh, which is um, 
the ultra poor graduation approach, which is um, a randomistic intervention uh, similar to cash transfers, um, very roughly, and which we know very well from um, from RCTs uh, will uh, create a um, 1.7x return. Um, so if we were to go spend uh, one billion dollars on that and give it, um, and there are 100 million Ethiopians right now, um, that would increase GDP per capita by 17 dollars. Um, only uh, from a baseline of $800. But uh, if we were to use this billion um, to prevent um, growth decelerations, uh, say like the one in Nigeria here, uh, then that would be equivalent to almost a $7,000 cash transfer for every Nigerian. Um, uh, so if you look at the total benefits to, uh, of causing these accelerations or preventing these decelerations, they're often in the hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of net present value. So that's just uh, this value here multiplied by uh, the population. And um, so, so, so the benefits of growth are huge. Um, uh, preventing the Nigerian deceleration would uh, be around uh, half a trillion, $500 billion. And uh, remember, you would have a billion dollars to, to create this uh, to create a growth acceleration of that magnitude or prevent um, growth deceleration of that magnitude. So you could hire a bunch of economists to do that. Um, so yeah, the main takeaway here is that um, um, preventing these growth uh, decelerations is orders of magnitude um, more effective than uh, very good uh, randomist intervention, interventions. And economics can clearly affect growth um, and prevent these uh, growth decelerations um, so that the expected benefits of growth-friendly research and advocacy are much larger than directly funding randomist interventions. And uh, so to get purchase on this intuition, consider that even if you were to take into account the total costs of all economists worldwide, their salaries every year since 1960, that will only cost you around $300 billion. And to be better than the graduation approach, the entire economics profession would only need to avert a single large deceleration, similar to the one uh, here in Nigeria in 1976, um, to be more effective than uh, the graduation approach. That, that would be all that economics would have ever have to do. So <clears throat> what is going on here? I think uh, very many things, but uh, one of the main things is um, precision bias, perhaps, uh, where we confuse um, uh, accuracy um, and precision. Sorry, this is accuracy. This is precision. Um, uh, we, we we conduct ever more elaborate cost effectiveness analysis to find out like which intervention is better than uh, another uh, through RCTs and so on. But we we lose track of the bigger picture and the crucial considerations, as uh, Nick Bostrom calls them. Um, in other words, we don't realize that it's uh, better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. So, because if we zoom out a little bit, um, we can uh, look at the, the story of human welfare over time. Um, it's really well illustrated by this graph. Uh, we see um, world GDP, which is now at 100 trillion uh, over time. And what you see is that uh, until 1800, average human welfare was pretty much stagnant. Uh, but after the Industrial Revolution, it shoots up and living standards uh, exploded. And um, this preceded most development economics, uh, obviously. So there was no, uh, this was all the invisible hand. Um, 
but uh, and and no you know uh, economic planning pretty much. But then after World War II, the development era starts, uh, the development economics era, and we have the end of colonization, and we have the founding of the IMF and the World Bank, um, other multilaterals, and um, especially the U.S. providing uh, lots of technical assistance to poorer countries. And overall, we have like a concerted effort by economists and uh, states to increase development, to increase growth. And the development era was also like a huge success. Um, since 1950, uh, human welfare has improved on all objective measures by more than all prior human history combined. Um, so this is the standard uh, Stephen Pinker uh, story that he, he tells in um, The Better Angels of Nature and so on. Um, so and then the question becomes, uh, if things are working so well, why, why change tech? Um, why not broaden and accelerate this process globally and replicate previous successes. And instead of replicating the success, the randomistas now ask, uh, among the interventions that can, we can test with RCT, what is the most impactful? But uh, in the wake of the period with by far the greatest progress in human welfare of all time uh, through growth, uh, this change in strategy is, is just really difficult to justify. Thank you. Thank you for that talk, Alka. We've already had a whole bunch of questions submitted, so let's kick off. Great, yeah. Are you concerned by the potential negative side effects of economic growth, like greater greenhouse gas emissions, greater consumption of animal products, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, of course it's it's uh, concerning, but um, the alternatives that are uh, often uh, proposed, like um, to uh, limit growth, uh, from the degrowth movement or from the zero growth movement, um, I don't think they are um, the answer or um, anywhere remotely um, politically tractable. So uh, emissions will rise in uh, developing countries, um, and uh, they have the right to grow their economies and you know um, have like a lifestyle that is similar to um, what advanced economies uh, now have in terms of lifestyle. And um, the answer is, is, is definitely not degrowth, but um, uh, trying trying to introduce carbon taxes, trying to uh, invent um, uh, clean energy technology that can uh, sustainably grow economies um, in in emerging in emerging markets, and um, that's sort of the way out. Um, uh, so growth has negative side effects, obviously. Um, but uh, those um, are, are not solved by not growing economies. Uh, quite the contrary, probably. Um, it's probably better to, to uh, grow now so that we have more money to, um, uh, to counteract the, the negative externalities from growth. Um, uh, there, there's an interesting paper also like, uh, by, uh, published on the EA forum uh, by Leopold Aschenbrenner, and uh, it's called uh, Existential Risk and Growth. Um, uh, for people who are more interested in the existential risk side, on the um, uh, animal consumption problem, uh, which which uh, is uh, has been written about under the um, under the poor meat eater problem, uh, I think there too uh, we see that um, meat demand in emerging economies is just uh, bound to to increase, and um, I think the way out is just to provide again. Uh, uh, clean meat and uh, um, uh, advanced economies can foster that through clean meat R&D. Um, and generally, like there's, there's a paper called The Moral Consequences of e Economic Growth. And um, 
the, the argument is that like everything that we sort of like cherish and value, like all the liberal values and enlightened values, they they are more prevalent in uh, uh, advanced economies um, in uh, that that have experienced lots of growth. And I think there too, like when it comes to um, animal welfare, uh, we just uh, need people, uh, yeah, to to um, uh, grow and then change their mind that. Uh, um, uh, animal um, welfare is important and uh, I think that that is uh, advanced through education and so on which is uh, again uh, a side effect of growth so yeah yeah that is pretty heartening do you think that we know what drives growth and do you think it's even knowable Um, because it seems that China and the US have different theories maybe we're only relying on cross-country comparisons with too many variables um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, we do roughly know uh, what causes growth, but this is like uh, an, uh, an uh, debate right now in economics where the randomista movement uh, says that uh, now uh, we don't don't know any longer what causes growth. It's it's uh, it's almost unknowable, um, and maybe I'm like caricaturing their position. Uh, a little bit, but they say it's very hard to know uh, what causes growth. And you can read about that in uh, their recent book, Duflo's uh, recent book, um, uh, Good Economics uh, Good Economics for Hard Times. Um, but then other people uh, say we do know what, what causes growth. And uh, from cr- cross-country regressions, which are often uh, caricatured as like uh, totally worthless, um, uh, we we have maybe found, uh, according to um, Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton, um, like what what uh, what causes growth, and and perhaps also perhaps more what um, what stops growth and what uh, um, leads to growth decelerations. Um, so so I think cross country regressions have some value, um, but obviously their value is sometimes overstated, and they have uh, of course methodological. Uh, problems in the forum post we do actually um, go a little bit and especially in the appendices uh, we go a little bit into um, this new emerging field uh, of uh, growth diagnostics where uh, unlike uh, in previous years where you had like a standard set of prescriptions uh, the Washington consensus um, you do now uh, look at uh, what what are the particular uh, bottlenecks that a country is facing um, to grow the economies and then uh, you diagnose it and then um, uh, you, you try to help them. Um, uh, so this is like under the under the uh, uh, keyword of uh, technical assistance. And um, so I think um, in, in my opinion, uh, I'm, I'm a bit against the, the randomistic take that we do not know at all what causes growth. And uh, certainly Land Pritchett also says that um, it's not an unknowable why uh, Venezuela is now uh, spiraling into hyperinflation and like um, in an economic mess. Um, we, we do really know like that, that their economic policies that they've uh, implemented recently are just very bad. And um, so this is not outside of the realm of empirical investigation. So, even if we expect that um, we know something about this, do you think that individual donors can know that their donation to advocacy can really um, grow? In particular, you might expect that um, the private sector and government are already going to have taken the low-hanging fruit, and so there wouldn't be as much left individual donors. 
Um, <clears throat> I think uh, that's, that's maybe uh, precisely the point that we should actually be uh, less certain and res less uh, risk and ambiguity averse. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm uh, pushing that maybe also a little bit full disclosure with my, uh, um, with my new project, Let's Fund, where, where I'm encouraging uh, normal donors also to give to high risk, high reward um, uh, giving opportunities uh, in the advocacy and policy research space. Um, and so uh, I, I think, uh, yes, it is more risky, um, but also because the benefits and the upsides are so high, um, I think it's worth it. Um, but uh, it's also, um, there, are, there, are, there are still funding opportunities, I think. Um, uh, it's, it's not like uh, think tanks don't have like um, um, no capacity to absorb additional funds. And um, uh, if you see um, uh, bigger donors, uh, such as the Open Philanthropy Project, they're also funding think tanks like uh, the Center for Global Development, which, uh, again, full good disclosures in my former employer, um, but yeah, so I think um, there are uh, giving opportunities, and in in the um, in the piece we actually say that uh, even though we don't have like very concrete recommendations for small donors right now, um, uh, if we were to do like a little bit of research, uh, then we could uh, probably find um, with with uh, relatively little effort um, some really good opportunities uh, for small donors. And um, yeah, I think uh, small donors might want to hold off giving to randomista charities. There's, there's research underway uh, and they can save their money and then give later. Um, so this is about giving now versus giving later. Um, yeah, until, until these uh, questions are resolved. Um, so I'm also not saying that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, um, but, but that might be the case. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, we should give to these, uh, you know, very robustly good uh, randomist interventions, which, yeah, to be fair, have like a huge uh, funding gap, and but we can we can put a lot of money, uh, you know, into gift directly. Transnational welfare uh, uh, has like a, a huge funding gap, um, but I think um, it, seemingly infinite. But I think um, if I think about EA, like in in um, in thirty years, then I would rather you know have uh, a small group of donors have funded like really um, catalytic, really transformational um, advocacy at first that like had a really high upside rather than, um, yeah, uh, spending lots of uh, money on um, like these small scale interventions that uh, won't affect growth and won't affect uh, world history um, by, by that much. Yeah. So I think people should be more, uh, less risk averse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had a couple of questions on specific kind of high-risk, high-reward things that people could fund. For example, um, Brian Kaplan's work on open borders um, and charter cities. How do you think about those two interventions as, as things to fund? Um, so, uh, yeah, open borders. Uh, so I'm, 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 a, I'm a big fan of uh, increasing uh, migration because uh, there, there are interesting papers on that, also by Land Pritchard. Uh, one is called, um, for people who are interested, uh, Trillion Dollars on the Sidewalk, where he makes the case that uh, by increasing migration, uh, we, can, we can unleash these uh, huge welfare gains for people who migrate to uh, advanced economies from emerging economies. And uh, so he makes this uh, really... Um, he gives this interesting example of like a, a Nigerian uh, cab driver who migrates to the United States and overnight he, he uh, just like by orders of magnitude increases his uh, productivity 
Um, and so, yeah, migration is really good. Now, <clears throat> um, and, and this is the, just the standard economic story of like, uh, that, that we should not have like that many restrictions and people should go, you know, where they have that comparative advantage and that will um, uh, increase growth. Um, but um, of course, we now also see uh, really worrying um, um, uh, backlash, populism and so on, and the, the, the rise of populism everywhere, Brexit, Trump, etc. And um, there is, there are interesting papers by uh, the MIT economist uh, David Otter, who um, says that uh, increased trade and uh, increased migration does uh, actually increase populism. Uh, and he has like interesting causal natural experiments where he can say like, with every thousand dollars of extra goods that are exported uh, to the United States, uh, we'll have like one additional uh, populist voter, one additional Trump vote, um, and so on. So, so you can like causally see that this is, this is happening. And uh, obviously it's also very intuitive. And so the answer here is obviously to not, um, you know, stop like uh, trade or stop migration, which has like these, these huge benefits, but uh, perhaps to slowly, more slowly face them in um, so that uh, people can adapt more. Um, and so that, uh, you know, like uh, a London cab driver, which is often like stereotypically, uh, just, you know, uh, 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 said to be like a typical Brexit voter because they will lose their job or like they will have face strong competition due to um, an, a European, uh, you know, a central European uh, Uber driver um, so that they can uh, not face like rapid competition um, all of a sudden, but you slowly face in migration and you slowly face in trade so that you have more uh, trade and migration in absolute terms. Um, so the, the area under the curve is higher, but um, you don't uh, have these sudden shocks to people so that they become populist and so on. Um, so uh, that is one thing uh, about open borders. And then about charter cities, um, uh, there is uh, an, an organization that... that uh, works on charter cities. I think they were also on the uh, 80,000 hours podcast uh, at one point. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm a bit worried that they're like very high costs um, uh, in terms of like setting up these charter cities. And um, I think there are lots of people in um, development economics who are somewhat skeptical and it seems to, to be a bit of a, uh, a, a People who advocate for these charter cities seem to have like quite the libertarian bent, um, where uh, policy uh, policy changes so hard, you know, um, for growth that you just have to completely start from scratch. Um, and um, yeah, they, they they probably have like very high uh, costs, but maybe they have also high benefits. Uh, obviously, um, some special economic zones like Hong Kong have like done a lot for growth, and um, yeah. Maybe I'm not uh, an expert on this topic, but um, those are sort of my two cents on it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, so uh, linked to these, um, in particular, your first answer about the difficulty of wanting to help people globally, but then also that causing problem within um, a country. Um, we're interested to hear about how important it is to ensure that the benefits of growth are shared equally within a country and also globally? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that's that's probably like uh, one of the the um, really outstanding questions uh, where um, uh, it it really depends on on how much worse off uh, the poorest of the poor, the the ultra poor, are compared to uh, the people on a median income in a country, um, and also uh, your discount rate. Um, so obviously with cash transfers, you can target like, uh, and then other randomistic interventions, they really, um, it's very easy to um, target the, the poorest of the poor, even in the poor countries. Uh, whereas with growth interventions, uh, you sort of rely on some sort of like trickle down economics approach, which uh, again has like a, maybe uh, like in, in this case, like a, a worse rep than, than is actually justified because we do see that over the long run, uh, if you grow an economy, then you will have more rule to urban migration, even though at first perhaps like economic policy advocacy will um, affect uh, people um, in the upper income strata uh, more so uh, than those in the uh, lowest, lowest bottom um, uh, decile. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that might be an outstanding question. So uh, if you have like a, a very high discount rate, and um, if you think that um, uh, maybe uh, one dollar uh, given to uh, the poorest people in the world is, is even worth more than a uh, hundred times uh, than giving um, money to the poorest Americans uh, to the to, to a normal American, then uh, it might be that you want to support randomistic interventions. Uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, because. Uh, the, the the effects of growth will will come with a delay um, of, of uh, advocating for growth policy will come with a delay and at first only affect um, yeah people who are richer in those countries yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's really interesting um, as our final question do you think that growth is um, still sufficient for eliminating poverty when using more sophisticated poverty measures than just headcount rates so poverty depth and poverty severity um, Yes, I, th I think this is just uh, a, a matter of like uh, how you, how you measure things, uh, um, and so yeah, I, I still think that um, uh, th this sort of like model holds. Um, yeah, um, I don't have much more to say about this. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, I feel like that's a, a good note to end on. That this is yeah. such a promising intervention. Um, thank you very much. This concludes the Q and A part of the session. But those listening, don't go away yet. Discussing new ideas with other people can be a really great to understand them. So we're going to use the last 20 minutes of the session for a couple of short speed meetings with other attendees. Um, if you check the session description below this video, you'll find a link to an icebreaker session where we're going to gather for those meetings. So please click on that link now and a new host will meet you on the other side. Thanks very much for watching.